when the wind blows against the side of a mountain, then that causes an updraft. So you 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 fly into the updraft, and then that takes you up every thousand feet. You go up in the air. The temperature is going to drop by two degrees. Okay. And if you can imagine a glider, you, there's no heater in a glider. No. I always remember in the Oster sitting in the glider and even with big moon boots on to try and keep warm. I remember taking my feet off the rudder pedals and putting them on top of the instrument panel because the sun was so hot. I mean, your head's boiling when your feet are freezing. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with my uncle Willie, I guess. That's the way to, to say who you are. So hello, Willie. Hello, David. The first question that I ask, and it's always a bit surreal at first to be having these conversations with people in my family, but the first question that I ask is, how do you know me? How do I know you? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I know it well, obviously, because um, your mother is my wife's sister. Um, and my first recollection of knowing you was when you must have been about three or four, I think. Um, uh, I was a nice little boy. And the first time I met you, you came to see us in Swindon when we lived in Belsey in Tootill in Swindon. When I... Um, first bought a house with your Aunt Margaret. I think Margaret had just downsized from her previous marriage when we moved in and um, I think uh, you and your mother came and um, selected some stuff that was left over from different boxes to take back to your house. And I think at that time, if memory serves me right, you were living in North Wales. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was a... That's my favourite part of my childhood yeah. when I lived in North Wales, yeah. That's right, that was near. Is it right? No, right. Uh, Cluid. Cluid. It was in Cluid and it was near Mould, I think. Mould, yeah. But there was a place the large seaside town that was on the coast. Oh, Rill. Rill, that's it, that's what right. I was thinking of. Rill, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the second question that I ask people is what do you do now? What do I do now? I, um, along with our business partner, um, I own three mobility stores, which um, provides uh, mobility equipment for 95%, let's say, the time of the elderly people who they need a mobility scooter or a wheelchair or a power chair. And we also, at the same time, we do um, hearing tests for people who provide hearing equipment. And um, we have a, pod- a podiatrist, or what used to be known as a chiropodist, I suppose, um, a couple of days a week in our shops. They come in and they do... Um, all types of foot care because the trouble with our ageing population I mean um, most elderly people can't physically get down to cut their own toenails so that's quite an interesting part of the business that you don't think about is, yeah. is um, people getting their having to get their toenails cut you know so to be able to come into a nice surgery and put their feet up and for half an hour get their nails cut and their, and their feet massaged is quite a nice little thing and you you co-run that so you co-run yeah well, that. well no well the podiatrist Podiatrist, well, in one of our shops, the main, our main, the biggest shop, anyway, the podiatrist, Michelle, she's employed by us. From a commercial point of view, she gets paid uh, sort of, you know, a, a good proportion of what she does because she, she is fully qualified. It is a university degree course, the sure. podiatry. 
and she's also qualified in biomechanics. So if somebody's got a, you know, a funny gait or there's something wrong with their foot and they're walking in an awkward way and it's putting their back out, she can actually um, watch them walking and then she can mould their, their foot and make a ins- and you know and then um, send that way to get an insole made properly for their, their shoes, which is another which is another sort of spin off to the business I suppose because when she sells them a mould for their shoes we also sell sh- um, shoes especially for um, swollen feet things so you know so there's a commercial aspect from it as well so that um, the, 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 um, from getting the, the nails cut they quite often end up paying a, buying or buying a pair of shoes from us as well so oh right so it kind of works yeah yeah well yeah, it does it works both ways yeah yeah, yeah. Well, that's great yeah. so I mean I should say we're, we're, we're sat in your in your front room and you've just picked me up it's, it's a it's a a funny thing because I, I was saying to you before I, I don't think I've ever been to see you and you and Margaret my aunt on my own before I normally come with the rest of the family and so it's a kind of it's an interesting uh, it's, it's good I, I'm really pleased to be here to, to to sort of meet you both kind of without the without the context of the rest of the family I guess the rest no, that, of that's true yeah because I, I think from if you think about it for, for the two of us just having a chat apart from a party or something yeah I suppose the biggest chats we would have had really would have been when you were quite small, actually. Um, you know, maybe walking along the park, um, kicking a ball or something, and you'd be shouting, "Uncle, would like come and look at this?" <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah um, yes. So I, th- I think I think um, I, I'm not sure if when you were small it was quite a big thing to have an uncle because you kept, you know, you would be shouting. Yeah, thanks, Uncle Willie. So we do this. And yeah, no, I like having an uncle, and I like yeah. being an uncle. I like yeah. uncles. Well, yeah, of course, I'm, yeah, yeah. Fa- I'm a fan of uncles. That's, that's you yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect I was only a couple of years older than you when I first met you for the first time. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because um, your aunt Margaret was 39 when I met her. And I'm seven years younger, so she would have been. I would have been 32. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, you would have been yeah. approximately my age. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting to think of because, yeah. I mean, obviously, to me, you were. I guess when you're a child, you you have no idea what age really is, yeah. do you? So your uncle is an old older person. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, at that time, I obviously didn't think myself old because at that time I was in the air force when I first met you. So. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's. I mean, that's right. And and this is a, it's a funny thing because all. Of, yeah, you're right. We have had a few conversations at parties. I think the last time we saw each other was at my mum's party. I think we had quite a long conversation. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah. You, with, you, you weren't playing the game. You were drinking coke that night. I was. I was. <laughs> well, I don't always. I don't always drink. No, so, no, no neither you should. Uh, but I was. I was. I was. Uh, I was. I was merry on on atmosphere though, then. And and, and uh, my brother was there, and there was a lot. We were we were talking quite quite a long time. Oh, it's nice. Lots of things. It was good. But um, a lot of my idea of what you, what you do and what you've been, you know, through your life, is it really comes through, I guess, kind of Chinese whispers of, 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 of you know, my mum's told me a lot, and then, like, you know what I mean? So I've, through the family, I've, I know about what you do probably more than we've ever sat down and you've directly told me about your history. You know, you get these... these, these People give you the history of, you know, they say, oh, your Uncle Willie did blah, 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 blah. But you don't know, I don't know if the questions I'm going to ask you are going to be wildly off base because they come second-hand or not. So apologies in advance. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you can you can pick what bits you like. I mean, the potted history of my life was um, um, born in the very north of Scotland in, in a place called Thurzo in Caithness. And then from there, at the age of five, 
my father moved south and from there we went to four or five different schools and um, I left school at 16 um, joined the Air Force and um, done my apprenticeship with the Air Force as, a, um, as an electrical engineer and then spent um, 22 years in the Air Force um, um, as a, an engineer the last two years in instructing and what they call air-to-air refueling that's where aircraft meet up in the air and join together and pass fuel from the tanker to the little aircraft that reminds and me of, there's a song there's a song isn't there uh, you mustn't forget to say maybe thank you I don't you mustn't forget there's a there's a line in that song about aeroplanes meeting in the and air to yeah. be refueled oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, the things I love so yeah and ten, the 10 years before I was instructing I was on the, the VC-10s um, travelling around with them doing engineering and, uh, and then that was it and then basically then when I was age of 40 coming out of the Air Force um, and if you've been an, Air for, uh, an engineer in the Air Force, you have to retake all your exams again to, to be a licensed engineer to work on the civilian aircraft. Well, you know, I used to travel, you know, travel around and fix aircraft all around the world. And in some ways, I didn't fancy doing that. So then, um, and I always fancied um, doing something entrepreneurial. And um, then I started the water cooler business, which you know about, and ran that with Margaret for seven years before selling it worked for um, the company I sold it to, a big American company called Culligan, and then um, through that was consulting for somebody in the water business, and um, they asked me to um, go and buy some mobility shops for them, and then I'd done that, and then I left them and started my own th- um, three mobility shops. So that's the potted history of um, where we're sitting here on the oh, well, that, I mean, that's, well, that's excellent, uh, and it's, a good, it's good to start with a potted history, because I definitely want to explore a lot of those areas are in a little bit more detail but it's nice to have the overview at the beginning I guess mm-hmm. you were an entrepreneur you are an entrepreneur yeah. <laughs> not in the past tense you are an entrepreneur is it technically correct to say that you're a millionaire I know it's not looked upon very favourably to talk about money in, 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 in the modern world is it but, but is that, um, is that fair, a fair thing to say well yes I suppose it's, it's fair to say that we did, um, we sold we sold the water business for over a million pounds. Okay, uh, and, and we didn't have a lot of debt at the time, but we did a certain a mortgage on the first house and things. And but you know, I mean, I would say you know, we spent you know, as well. I mean, we've got a comfortable property now, and we've got a, you know, we're able to afford a carriage and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, um, I suppose asset wise, you know, we're not sure about a million pounds anymore. But um, the whole idea was when we sold the business that. Um, in theory, at that time, I was just over 50. And the long-term plan was I could have, I thought, on my investments, sit back from selling the water business and not work again. But I don't know, you, if you, when you're young, you sort of, you know, investments don't really mean a lot to you. But um, if you put all your, your money into investments, um, over the since we sold the business, all our investments generally went down. You, you, you know, once upon a time when we sold the business, you could have quite comfortably have been making interest enough to live off your investments but right. that's no longer that's no longer the case but okay I mean, so you know so in fact you know I mean I've always liked a bit of security which is sort of forcing me to, well you know, not forcing me but it makes me make sure I'm getting work and uh, yeah. yeah did you miss work though I mean is that part of the reason why you've come back to work well that's a good question a very good question actually because <laughs> when 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 I sold the water business and I worked for this American company for two years, that I, that, no, four years, sorry, that I sold it for, then 
having sold the business, you're not allowed to work in the water business, which I was in for two years. And for that two years, I did, um, you know, just employ, um, enjoy playing golf, and um, I had a private pilot's license, so I used to go flying. But in all honesty, yeah, after a year or so, I'd done everything I wanted to do in the garden. <laughs> I, I was, I didn't want to play golf every day, and I didn't want to go flying every day. And, uh, yeah. and, and also things like flying, although it's a nice hobby, I mean, um, you can't afford to pay a hundred well, well, over a hundred pound an hour just to fly someone, have a cup of tea, and fly back again. You know, it's, you know so it's, it's, it, things like that are expensive if you want to do them. You know. Do you still go flying? No, but um, um, two years ago, more, well, I decided myself to stop. To be honest, and when you were, when you were in the when you were in the RAF, you were an engineer. Yeah. So you, you, you didn't fly as part of the RAF. That was a no. separate. No. Well, engine. Well, in the DC-10s, you flew with the aircraft. You, the the, 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 the DC-10s always carry a, what they call a ground engineer, which is at that time, if you want to be like a ground engineer, you've got to be what they call a senior non-commissioned officer, and then you spend an, a year, an extra another year training on all the engineering aspects of the VC-10 aircraft in that case. Um, it could have been a TriStar or anything, but in my case it was a VC-10. And then, basically, you, uh, then you fly with the aircraft everywhere and you're like a, um, a jack-of-all-trades, a master of none. So I was an electrical engineer by my in- initial training, but then in, in if you want to become what they call um, a crew chief or a sort of ground engineer, then you do, a, you do a couple of months learning about the VC-10 engines the VC-10 airframe, the radio, the radar, the navigational instruments, and on a tanker aircraft, like, you know, air-to-air refuel, and then you have to learn about all the different aspects of the, the, the mechanics of putting the hoses out the back. Because you can imagine flying along at 700 miles an hour, wow. and then you throw two hoses out the back for two ho- and then two fighter aircraft have actually got a come up behind you and actually hit your aircraft in effect to get the fuel. You know, so it's yeah, that's quite a, a precise operation. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's a bit like um, going, you know, one car driving behind another and trying to put the broomstick, if it was stuck in the front of your car, up the exhaust pipe of <laughs> the car in front, you know, that's the... Yeah. But uh, bearing in mind the aircraft can go up and down. And, yeah. Sure. So you flew in planes, but you didn't fly planes? Oh, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, on the VC-10s, yeah, I mean, I... I I must have. I mean, in a normal year, I would say I was sitting in a VC ten probably. I don't know, 150, 200 days a year or so. And is that why you decided to become a pilot in your spare time then? Um, yes and no. But my hobby in the Air Force um, before I met uh, your aunt Margaret, my main hobby in the Air Force was uh, gliding, okay. um, which um, and that's. Um, the gliders, that's what the ones where you get winched from the ground and um, then the winch typically takes you up to a thousand feet and then you from there then you you dip the nose of the glider and then you release the cable and then you, you fly around and then you hope you pick up a thermal, which a thermal is probably, you know, is, is warm air coming up from the ground mm. and then you circle in that um, in that pocket of air going up if you like and then you hope that's going to take you up to um, you know, three or four thousand feet, so that you can stay airborne for hours on end. I mean, yeah. the typical glider flight, to be honest, is probably less than ten minutes because right. you don't pick up that thermal. But 
when when they're you know when the air's warm or you know and, and things like um, bits of concrete or tarmac or things like that kick off thermals generally if the, if the temperature's right and the, the, the air mass is right. So it's a bit like surfing; you're kind of waiting for that kind of perfect wave Absolutely. when it comes. Yeah, it's, exactly it's the same. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. Ah. The, the only thing is, in, in gliding, you only really get the thermals in the in the warm weather. You know, this time of year, because it's, um, I don't know, when you're doing Yeah, it's winter now. It's winter now. You, you, you find it hard to to get a thermal. But then um, what we used to do um, was go places where you didn't rely on the thermals, like um, a couple of times we went to Italy. When the wind blows against the side of a mountain, then that causes an updraft, so you 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 connect with the up, you, you fly into the updraft, and then that takes you up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so generally in the morning, the, the, the air's going up the side of the mountain, and then in the late afternoon, if you go into the valley, then the, the air's usually going up in the middle of the valley, and you keep them going up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, yeah, and we used to go to Italy to try and get our gold height, and that used to be, I'm, I'm from going from memory here, but gold height used to be to try and, I think it was over, it was either 10,000 or 12,000 feet you had to get to. And used to have oxygen in the gliders to, to get up to that height. It's quite scary then, I guess. Very scary. Well, in, 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 in places like Italy it was, because you were, you were aerotow, so you have, um, um, you know, another aircraft pulls your glider up, and then when he rocks his wings, then you have to release your glider, and then that's you left in the middle of these, in the middle of the mountains here to, wow. to, uh, to go up. Oh, fantastic, yeah. And Aosta was the, the main place I remember going, and... Um, even all the air traffic you had to do in Italian, you know. So, uh, and if you can, you wouldn't believe how many gliders there would be. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I wouldn't be exaggerating to say there'd be well over a hundred gliders launched in the morning. Wow! And then if the weather, if the weather comes in, if you can imagine, because if you're up in the mountains and the clouds start to come in, nobody wants to be above the clouds in the mountains and can't see the the airfield, you know. So, you see all these gliders. Um, Coming in, and yeah, I, I, I still remember the sort of call sign. It was um, uh, as, as you crossed the airfield, you had to say, and you give your um, your call sign in Italian. I think mine was Seti Otto, and you in, and, and you, I think you had to say in Procedura, and, and that meant they knew then you were crossing the airfield. And then as you turned to come into the runway, you you would go in finale, and as you were going in finale. You look out to the right and left, and there'd be other gliders going in finale. <laughs> and of course, the great thing with the gliders, you could land on the grass either side of the runway as well. Oh. You had to, you had to, and of course, once you, without an engine, you've got to you're relying on then like a car coming with a rope or something to pull you out the way back up to the other end of the airfield. Well, that's well, that's a, that's amazing. So I can, I mean. But what attracted you to doing that? I mean, is it the well, adrenaline? Uh, or well, the I, I tell you what. I mean, and it's a, it is a lesson to people. When I left school, and I said I left school at 16, if I'd said to my mother or father I wanted to be a pilot, they would have said to me, absolutely, you can't, you know, you know, you're, you know, you can't leave school and then be a pilot and all the rest of it. But actually, um, in some ways, it was proven to myself I could be a pilot. I mean, gliding was a nice way in the Air Force of being able to fly, and it didn't cost you an arm and a leg. I mean, it cost you a bit of money, but not not as much as power flying. I mean, <coughs> And then, to be honest, that was one of the the, the nice things about um, selling the, the water business was then I had enough money to fly. And if you can imagine a day gliding, you're, 
you go to the airfield, you take, you pull the gliders out, and then you spend some time on the tractor pulling the cables down to attach the gliders, and then then the gliders get winched up, and you spend some time on the winch doing the winching of the gliders for maybe three, five or ten minute flights in the day. And then when you think, when you've got the money and you can do your private pilots, you get an aeroplane with an engine in it, you go along there, throw a hundred pounds at the guy, jump in, and uh, off you go flying and come back. I mean, I know it's not as simple as that, because you've got to, you know, you've got to take your flying test and your navigation test and your radio test and things, but if you've got the nose to do that, you can, in some ways, I mean, you can fly, you know, and it's a sh- it is a shame in a way because sometimes it is money that can allows people to become a pilot, you know, it's a, especially a commercial pilot. You know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so when you, I mean, so when did you have a, a dream of being a pilot when you were a boy then? Or not really, no. It just came later in life. Yeah, it came, it, well, it actually came. I think really in the first, first or second year I was in the air force because you used one of the things they used to do when you were. Um, training um, as a as a apprentice engineer, you'd done uh, an air experience flight in a, a small aircraft called a chipmunk, and um, all the pilots that flew the chipmunks were you know quite experienced RAF pilots, and um, they were on ground tours, so they used to like flying the the, the pilots. And um, I remember the very first time I'd ever been an aircraft was this chipmunk, and the pilot said, "Do you, do you want to do some aerobatics?" And I just said yes, not on a clue what that was about, you know. And um, you know, the next thing we're upside down doing barrel rolls and loop the loop. Fantastic, yeah. And um, yeah, and then then that was yeah, and then I suppose in some ways um, that led me on to the path of um, uh, it wasn't straight away, but it was probably three or four years later. I took up gliding as a bit of a hobby, and uh, yeah, done that. And I wasn't able to continually do gliding every year because um, um, I had postings in uh, Cyprus and Canada you know certain places like that where you, there was no gliding really you know. During your time in the RAF you managed to go to lots of parts of the world I guess as you're suggesting there Oh yeah absolutely yeah. well in the VC tends to be, you know I mean I was away in fact I got the job as a ground engineer um, on the VC tens just as I met your aunt so she would probably, in days worth, she probably only saw me for something like six months of the year. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, it might be just away for one night and back. And, but, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, no, yeah, everywhere from the Falkland Islands to the um, Middle East, Far East. What, what was it like going to all of these parts of the world? I mean, what, what, did, what did you bring back from that to your life? Or? Oh, um, what did I bring back? Well, I've always loved travelling, so that's that's been a great thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just bringing back the different experiences, and um, I think when you first start off as a ground engineer, you think you you get yourself the best uh, cocktail cabinet you can because everywhere you go, you could get your duty free and things. And <laughs> <laughs> that wears a bit thin after a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah that's in it. fact, if you if you went into the uh, drinks cabinet now, you could still get there's still bottles of stuff there that's. Uh, that's uh, came from different places, um, yeah. but yeah, I suppose it's just uh, different uh, cultures. Food, I mean, I you know, I mean, I'm happy to eat just about any food from anywhere around the, the world. I think. You know, uh, what was your favourite part of the world to visit? Um, good question. Uh, I think for exotic, probably Penang and, uh, and Malaysia. Uh, uh, really. that, yeah. 
I think just the people are so nice in the Far East. I think, yeah, really nice. Yeah. Okay. And um, I spent two years um, before I was a Grenadier in northern Canada in a place called Goose Bay. That's got very special memories for me. Um, yeah, that was nice. There was um, the first time I was there. There was only sixty RAF people there, and the second time there was only fifteen RAF people there. So it was. Um, you only, you, well, you you only went into work for the days when there was an aeroplane coming in or going out, and that sometimes was, you know, that could be weeks in between sometimes, you know. So yeah, we used to spend a lot of time on um, what they call the skidoos, which is little motorbikes for going over the snow. Very cool. And, and ski, you know, skiing at weekends. But um, but when I say cold, I mean you, you're talking average temperatures in the winter sort of minus 30 sort of that sort of temperature okay so yeah. cold oh yeah very cold yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's it it was very dry cold I mean, in Goose Bay you couldn't make a snowball very hard to make a snowball because the snow so dry if you, if you picked up a handful of snow you couldn't put your two hands together and rub it t- together and uh, make a snowball okay you actually have to add water to it to make it a snowball wow because <laughs> in this country everything you know this, our snow is quite wet so you can make a snowball but in somewhere like Canada you can't physically make a because it's hard okay yeah. yeah no that makes sense yeah and one of the big things out there is the the winter festival in Uri and in Goose Bay well there's and it's the same as places like Quebec and that they have these winter festivals but they um at Goose Bay, there was the four clubs. There was the RAF club, there was the Canadian Forces club, and there was the American club. And there must have been another club of some sort. And each of them does some ice sculptures outside the club. So you'd have a big mound of snow came, and then you used to spray the snow with water to make it icy hard. And then everybody would attack it with um, chainsaws and make the... the um, the, the shapes you wanted. The first year I was there, I remember, we thought we'd be really hip and make a hovercraft, because at the end times the hovercraft used to be, so we think in the Air Force and we'd been one who made this hovercraft and we thought this was bound to win but of course the Canadians didn't have a clue what a hovercraft was, <laughs> so, you know, we thought it was good but you, you, apart from cutting the, the snow into the shape of the sculpture then what you used to do was go out with watercolour paint spray the watercolour paint over the bits and of course it instantly freezes on it so you can make all sorts of different oh wow colours and the second year I remember doing it we'd done um, Disney characters and that that worked a lot better because obviously it was universal 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 yeah yeah. Mm. but uh, but yeah because apart from the the RAF and the forces at Goose Bay the the main other people were um, teachers and social workers from Newfoundland and um, Nova Scotia that was there and, and there was some midwives and nurses from the UK in the hospital so, um, so it was a good social life when you were young you know. yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds great yeah. so you grew up in for the first five years you were in a, a is it a, sm- a small village in Scotland or yeah yeah Le- yeah Leipster I suppose was yeah, yeah. so kind of as, as small as what as, like as small as Afonwen was or do you remember that in, in North um, Wales? I can't remember that well, but I, th- I would say maybe slightly larger. I had a butcher, a post office, a general store, and a hotel, I think. You moved from there at five? Yeah, to a place called Edsel, yeah. yeah. And, and what did your dad do? Because I guess that's probably why you moved, yeah? Oh, it was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, the proper name for it. it, was excavator driver, but really that was bulldozers and diggers. and um, Up the north of Scotland, not a lot of work. At that time he was trying to support um, four of us, because two older sisters... 
myself and my my brother that was just younger than us. And then we we moved to a place called Edsel. I'm very vegan, to be honest. We bought a, a sort of mobile home. We lived in mobile home, and I think at that time this place Edsel it was a, they were building an airfield in Scotland, and I think that was the the big project there. Yeah, and then I think we only stayed there about um, eighteen months, uh, two years. Like that. Yeah. Did you move around then in the in the home, or did you? In the yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, a sort of transporter used to come and move the, the sort of mobile home, stroke big caravan, I suppose. You know? Right. Yeah. So to each job, the the, ne- the next job that you. Yeah, had. that's right. Yeah, we moved. I think we moved to near Ed- a place near Edinburgh, a place called Aswade, and then we stayed there a year, I think. And then we moved to the west coast of Scotland to a place called Tarbert. And that was a beautiful place. In fact, that's one of the places if I got to Scotland, I still go and visit Tarbert on the west coast. And we stayed there about three years. And I've missed a place out. We went to another place near Falkirk, Carring Shore, for a while. And then we went, then we settled near where my father still lives, in a place called Denilon Head near Stirling. Ten, I think, when we moved there. Right, so you, mu- you, you must have moved schools a lot then. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I moved schools a few times when I was growing up, but that sounds like you've, you've got me beat on that. Yes, and um, my sisters, my older sisters, they actually were in more schools than I was, you know, just yeah. between going to primary to secondary schools, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, and you left school at 16. Yes, yeah. Did Did... Did you have what they call qualifications? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, um, in, a, in a, I suppose, yes, I did have qualifications. Not, not like a degree type qualification, but the, the Scottish equivalent of the O-levels, I suppose. Right. Um, but in Scotland, at that time, you were either like on an academic stream or a, a technical stream, I suppose. Right. And um, at 15, I, um, I took the choice to take the technical stream because they looked at your academic qualifications and, you know, the they realise you're not going to be a brain surgeon, so you're better to... Um, sort of. At that time, most people were actually leaving school at 15. And right. I, I remember the career guy saying, you, you know, you, you do you no harm to stay for another year, and and as well as doing your qualification, do your first year city and guilds in mechanical engineering, which is what I did. That was at another school, actually, up to 15, at Denny High School, and then I went to Camelon High School to do the city and guilds in um, mechanical engineering. And at the same time, you'd done your old levels and art and things like that. So that meant that you were kind of qualified uh, in City and Girls Engineering when you were... Well, well that, that, give you, that only gave you the first year to be right. true. But, but, I mean, if it, the, the main benefit, I mean, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, was... Uh, I suppose I was always thinking I would go to... Because near um, that bit of central Scotland where we settled was the, the Grangemouth, is, was the big industry... And um, there was ICI and big companies like that where I, I'd always thought I'd go and do an apprenticeship. But at the same time, I was in the—I was remember—I was in the Sea Cadets as a you know as a lad. And um, I, having went to a couple of Navy bases, I, I decided I didn't fancy joining the Navy as such, which I thought I might have wanted to, but uh, it seemed a bit too hard. That. And then, um, but what it did do it, going to the school the way I'd done it was it. It allowed me to pass the aptitude test to come and go into the Air Force as an engineer. I mean, they were straight up my street because I used to love fixing clocks and things like that. And all the aptitude tests were, you know, the long gear trains. So if the the first gear's turning clockwise, about 20 gears down the way with a lever, what way does it go? And honestly, I could do that in my head. In fact, even now, I think I could do it. So do you you think you kind of have an interest in engineering that 
that, that that was kind of there within you before you even sort of saw the oh, kind yeah. of qualifications and oh, stuff. Oh, definitely, so. yeah. Because if somebody's clock was broken around where we lived, they used to take it across to me to see if I could fix it first. And, 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 okay. Yeah. It's funny enough because now, I mean, I can I still help fix mobility scores now, but I've, and having spent all that time in the air force and engineering, I've got no real interest in engineering. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to pause this because my aunt's yeah. market's just arriving. Okay, do you want some of these nuts by you? Because now I'm realising they're all by me. No, no, that's fine. You have them. I'll move that, that a little bit closer. Mm. So we've, we've, we've kind of, for our half time, we've changed from tea to, well, you've got beer and I've got cider. Yeah, yeah. And we've got nuts and crisps. So, yeah, nuts and yeah. so we're, we're, fortified for, we're fortified for the, the time to, to go. We were just getting into engineering, really, and, and, and that, that you had trained to be an engineer and then you went on to be an engineer. It wasn't exactly a choice, I guess, but it does seem to have been very in line with what you're interested in. Is that is that fair to oh, say? Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think um, um, from from um, I think we've had this conversation before, you know, in some ways. But I've always been quite practical, so I think um, from that point of view, engineering was a, a sort of logical step to go into something along that line. You know, um, yeah. But I mean, the type of engineering I, I've always done is you know. Very practical, you know. Whereas you know, your cousin Bob, he's a you know PhD mechanical engineer, and I mean, he, you know, he would call himself a proper engineer. But I mean, Bob, I mean, Bob would never put his hand on a set of spanners or anything. Sure. His is all more, uh, more you know, composite levels and uh, drawing di- drawing diagrams rather than actually getting your hands dirty. No, well, I'm not even sure. Yeah, yeah, well, not even. I don't even think it's drawing diagrams anymore. It's more. Um, well, certainly CAD. They, they do. Yeah, that's not true. They do do the CAD that they drawings and things, but it's as much mathematics as uh, right. as practical. But it's very big at the minute. And uh, you know, if somebody wants uh, something. Funny enough, he is in the, the aviation business now. It's, um, it's making composite parts for the Airbus uh, industry, which is a company called GKM. And um, he uses these new 3D printers a lot. Okay, yeah. So, uh, I mean, he can take a, you know, take his drawing and actually make it into a, a scale model of exactly what he wants to, to do, you know. from you know, So, he's, he's, he, you know, he sets one of these 3D printers going and... Um, and there it is. There's the that's design. fantastic. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. It took me a, it took me along to um, supply with three D printers one day, and it was just fantastic with them. Different, just about mm-hmm. anything they can do on the three D printer. And, and they still play with it a little bit. So if somebody's leaving, they, they make their name in three D or something like that. You know, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but no, but um, yeah, I mean, sometimes they'll come along with this briefcase. He'll show me a, you know, a, a flap or something for an aeroplane that, that he's made to scale with this special composite plastic. So does the maths of stuff interest you then, or is it just the, like, because there has to be some, like, when you were talking about snow earlier on, like, obviously you're observing the way that that things work and working out how Uh, things operate, so there is a, there's a evaluation process going on. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah, and when you're flying, I mean, well, yes, well, if you... From an engineering point of view, I mean, I mean, I suspect we all did at school. You do physics. I mean, but I mean, I went down the route of electrical engineering, and um, you know, you soon realise that all these formulas you learn at school and how to transpose formulas and that is very important. You know, mm. Ohm's law is not just something to pass an exam. You know, you need to be able to work out um, what size fuse to put in or how much current something's going to take yeah. before you Life blow up your instrument. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and certainly when you're flying, but whether you're in a glider or a, a 
power the aircraft. I mean, yeah, you know, you have to do like uh, ready reckoning, um, you know, for working out your navigation. You know, if you, you know, obviously a compass is three hundred and sixty degrees, and you you've got to quickly work out what's the reciprocal of where you're flying, so you, you know where you've come from, if you like. Yeah. And then you've got to work out what, where the wind direction is coming from, because obviously that's going to be pushing you, of course. So you've got to try and work out the vector to make sure, you know, the airfield of wherever you're going is going to be in the same path. And then if you're going high, like, um, like I, I think I said in the gliders, when going for your gold height when you're up to um, 10,000, 12,000 feet, um, you, some things you just it's ingrained in your um, psyche, like the dry adiabatic lapse rate means that the temperature generally drops between just about 2 degrees per 1,000 feet. So every 1,000 feet you go up in the air, the temperature is going to drop by 2 degrees. Okay. And if you can imagine a glider, you, there's no heater in a glider. No. In fact, it's, <laughs> it's quite, quite funny, actually, because uh, I always remember in Eosta sitting in the glider, and even with big um, moon boots on to try and keep warm, I remember um, taking my... Uh, taking my feet off the rudder pedals and putting them on top of the instrument panel because the sun was so hot. I mean, your head's boiling when your feet are freezing because yeah. in the sun, everything's warm, but then with your feet were down beside the rudder pedals. So I remember sitting quite blissfully for about half an hour one day sort of with my feet on top of the instrument panel just to try and get them warm, you know. With the, yeah. So, yeah, so the, that is important, you know. This, um, uh, you know, so um, you know, freezing levels for you know for you know your wings and everything else because you get, you know, if you got a lot of ice in your wings, that's you know you don't you no longer have a nice shaped wing to that's going to fly with. You know, yeah. once ice starts building up in your wing, that's uh, you know makes sure. the wing a different shape and you can go down quite fast. You know, so yeah, so yeah, so yeah, like you said, that's absolutely true. It's um, you don't have to be great at mathematics, but you need to have a uh, you know, a certain understanding of it, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and then you went from engineering in the RAF to being an entrepreneur. I mean, what? how did that change happen? And how did that change? Well, you know, it's a funny story. Last Sunday I was at um, uh, somebody's uh, 65th birthday party, and uh, this chap I know, he'd been a bank manager, and left, he left being a bank manager to becoming a, an importer of licorice, and he sells this licorice at um, 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 craft markets or we call it farmers markets and things like that. And he, he brings this, I think he said it was from Italy, brings this um, licorice in at a pallet at a time. And my earliest memory of trying to make some money from something, I always remember at the back of our house um, in, um, near Stirling, myself and my brother, because I mean, we, by this time, the time we were in Stirling, my mother and father, had, there were six of us, there was... Um, you know, five brothers and sisters and my mum and dad. So there was, there was absolutely no money to spare. So myself and my brother we used to do paper rounds, early morning roll deliveries, anything. And one of the things um, we used to do, we used to have a little shop at the back, and just in the front of the shed. We used to pretend, you know, and we used to buy um, strips of licorice for I think, I can't even, I can't remember if it was a halfpenny or a penny. And we just cut the licorice in half and stretch it and sell it for a penny. So we were, in effect, doubling our money. <laughs> so that, that's my earliest uh, thing of um, being sort of entrepreneurial, if you will. Um, but then, on the serious point, again, in the Air Force, when I used to go gliding, although there was Air Force, you were, you were in charge of running your own bar and things like that. So for a couple of years, I was the, the bar member for our um, gliding club, and that's where buy all the 
buy all the drinks in and then sell them on. You know, but that was all making profit for the gliding club. That was that was a personal profit. But yeah. it gives you an idea of you know running a business and uh, and the same in Goose Bay when there was a, the, the the you know the RAF bar was you know you had to week at a time you had to spend doing the bar. So you, you know, you, and of course the great thing in the Air Force is. If you're selling anything in the Air Force, like in, certainly in the bar, everything's accountable. You know, there's, you know, if they say there's 89 pints of beer in a barrel of beer, they want money for 89 pints. Okay. If there's a bottle of whiskey, is 32 tots of whiskey. You got to the, you know, so, so when you do your stock check at the end of the week, you know, you have to account for 32 tots of whiskey. Which, believe me, in the, in the gliding club bar wasn't easy <laughs> because if you. Yeah, but not not with, and that's not with people being dishonest. But um, if, um, it's, if I'll give you a good example, like at, say at ten o'clock you decided you were going home and there were still ten people in the bar, you yeah. just, just leave them the keys and just say put the money in the, the put the money in when you've had a drink. But of course, with the best will in the, the world, people will say I've only got uh, a pound. I'll just have a half pint. But you know the half pint becomes three quarters of a pint, and then yeah. yeah and then, you know, when people's had a few drinks, I'll oh, put the money in the till tomorrow. But um, so that didn't always work. So, so, the, so the, there, was, there was always a bit, there was always, well, not always, but quite often there was a bit of money short. But, uh, but that, that said, you could usually make that up because on a barrel of beer, you were allowed so many pints of what they call ullage. I don't know if you've ever heard of ullage, but that's basically the amount of beer that's wasted when you're washing the pipes because you wash the pipes. And then you pull a couple of pints through to make sure there's no chemicals left. Okay. Yeah. So I think you, you could say you were allowed, say, four pints to do that. So in reality, you might only take two pints. So you so you could gain a couple of pints. <laughs> you know, and that that was sort of like uh, honest fiddling, I suppose. You know. And um, and then if you sold um, any food for yourself behind the bar, you know, if you if you made a chili or a curry and you charged a pound a bowl or whatever, then that belongs to the bar sort of thing, you know. So, yeah. you, know, so you didn't have to account for that sort of thing to the uh, yeah. But certainly all the drinks had to be accounted for, absolutely, you know. Cause, uh, yeah. yeah. So when you left the RAF, did you have the business already in place or did yeah, you kind um, of take a leap? No, no, no. Um, what happened was... Um, well, in, in the... the, the it's a funny situation when you're in the Air Force because you, you do have to leave it one day. Yeah. And um, and like I said before, you know, I mean, you can go down the route of still being you know, an engineer in the aircraft, and I mean, you can be, you can go straight in and you know work as an unlicensed engineer in the aircraft engineer in, in you know in the civilian air uh, aviation industry. But you know, it's the pay is proportionally smaller if you're unlicensed to be licensed and. Um, to be a fully licensed engineer in something like an Airbus, you know, it's like going back to school for another year or so, really, to you know, to get all the to get all the same ticks in the box I used to have in the Air Force with the VC10, you know. Right. Yeah. In fact, that's changed in the Air Force now. You do actually get some the civilian qualifications, you know. To, that's a good idea. Oh, it is. It's a good change. But they've spent all that time training you, yeah, and, and, you've, and yeah. you've done all the normal uh, engineering courses with the Air Force, but. You get an RAF qualification, not a civilian qualification. That's very strange. Yeah, but they have, they have addressed that to a certain yeah, degree. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's not, but to be fair, that's the same for RAF pilots. I mean, RAF pilots. You know, I mean, you might see some guy flying around in a Hercules or something. I mean, he can take that. He can fly that Hercules all around the world, 
the day he comes out of the Air Force, he's still got to um, pay for for all his licenses to give him an air transport license. That's, that's weird. That, that is, oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's the stories at, um, like at Lionel when I was there, you know, the CA guy, the, that's the civilian air authority. You know, one of the examiners come up and fly in the, the RAF aircraft, you know, say before a pilot's leaving the Air Force. And if he's doing his instrument landing thing for, you know, so he has to get signed off. If he, if the pilot mucks it up, it, it, you know, the, the examiner will say, we can go and do that again. But that's another £100 or something, you know, and the, you know, the pilot will sort of take his checkbook and check and see if he's got another £100 to, to do the, the route again. You yeah, know, sort of it's, it's not cheap. Oh, no, it's, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. yeah, so when you decided to leave, how did you become an well, engineer? Well, yeah, well, yeah, so I didn't go down the engineering route, yeah, right. that's right, yeah. So um, I decided then to um, do something for myself. So the great thing would be on the VC-10s, I did, I did go around um, America, where, I mean, I used to spend, uh, I don't know, couple of months a year probably going around America and doing different things with VC-10s. One of the things I did see there was water coolers, which was quite new in this country at the time. Mm -hmm. And I always remember saying to somebody, that would be a nice little business, you know, because I was actually looking for different things. And um, so that was always in the back of my mind. And then a friend of mine that was in the Air Force, who I'm still good friends with, he, he, he came out of the Air Force about um, two years before me and he started an uh, office cleaning business. And I used to meet him up when I was in the Air Force and he used to tell me all about VAT and employing people and all these things. So I used to put all that to, you know, to log all that somehow, you know. And um, then I saw an article in the Daily Mail when I was about uh, 38 and a half, I suppose, for a water cooler, about this guy in London who was running a water cooler business and he was doing very well, you know, a guy called Spencer. And off the cuff, I, I just uh, got in contact. I found his contact details, and I got in contact with him. And asked him, you know, was it difficult to start a water cooler business? And then he suggested I go down and see him. And um, my friend who had the office cleaning business had a franchise, and I quite liked the idea of a franchise because that was somebody to hold your hand, you know, because a franchise. Basically, you buy all your stuff from them and you pay them a royalty every month, depending on your sales. And But they tell you all about how the sales and marketing and everything goes. Anyway, this chap with the watercolour business, he didn't do a franchise. But he said he, he would give me a distributorship. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, basically, you, you don't have to, to pay me any royalties, but just buy all your water and your cups and your water coolers through me. And I said, well, yes, well, that sounds like a good idea. I'm quite naive. So I said, yeah, so I agreed to buy my water from him, my cups from him, and my water coolers from him. He always said, I always remember his words, he always said, um, grow your business slowly, you know, there's no hurry, you know, just do it slowly, keep it a day. And then, less than a year after we started this, um, we got a call from Spencer's lawyer, I think it was, to say he'd went uh, bankrupt, owing something like um, a million pounds. Because he'd done the complete opposite of what he told me to do. He borrowed all the money to um, to grow his. He did have a big business in London, you know, inside the M25. So that left then your aunt Margaret and myself, um, and Ben and I now still in the Air Force at this time, and she was doing all the deliveries and uh, right. accounting. And that. I, she used to do the deliveries, and at this time I was instructing, so it was quite good. So I could usually have an afternoon off to go and put a water cooler or something in. But anyway, we were left sort of high and dry then, with no suppliers, so. Um, I quickly found the, the people that supplied him with the water coolers, so I was able to get the water coolers from them. 
then I went and we went and sourced our own spring in Wales to get our own water, and then I found um, um, the cup supplier. So basically, I had the three things I needed: water coolers, um, water, and cups. So then we, and then and through that, it was the most fortunate thing that happened because. Um, instead of paying £175 to him for a water cooler, I was only paying £100. Right. And yeah. Instead of paying £1.75 for a bottle of water, I was only paying something like £1.25. And instead of paying £16 for a box of cups, I think I was paying £10. You know? so, so the franchise are doing things through somebody is an expensive way to do it in some ways. But anyway, so fortunately, through his misfortune, we. Um, and then, then my next bit of good fortune, if you like. So that was. So that was, that was the water cooler thing started. And I always remember saying to Margaret, I said, look, I mean, and I was signed in the Air Force to age 47, and at this time I was 38 and a half. And I said to Margaret, I said, if we get up to 50 water coolers out on rental, I can just about afford to come out the Air Force because, that'll, you know, if I, if I do all the driving myself and put all the water coolers in and everything, I can make £20,000 a year and a bit of pension, that'll be fine. So and to do that, and then just about I suppose I was about thirty nine and a half or so. The the Air Force um, was offering voluntary redundancies. Okay. So which was um, um, a year and a half tax free salary. So um, and, and that in my case that went something like thirty thousand pounds. And um, at that time we only. Had I think with 37 or 38 water coolers out of rental, which is like next to nothing in the water cooler business. Anyway, took the chance, took the voluntary redundancy, and then with that uh, money, we, in seven years, got the business up to over a thousand water coolers out in rental. And then we were approached by this American company, um, Culligan, to, to buy the business. And at that time, we were 15 or 16 people with um, five or six vans on the roads. And you know, and we physically owned a, a thousand water coolers, you know. And you did a sort of deal, didn't you, where you sold it to them, but you remained on salary? Is that right? Well, that's right. Um, well, but there's, well, you, you, you could, you, you know, they they wanted me to, um, they wanted to buy the business, but they wanted me to carry on um, running the the southwest for them, as they called my my business, and. Uh, so I'd done that really for four years, yeah. But my, from from the Air Force experience, actually, I mean, my my water cooler company had uh, more ticks in the boxes than they had because um, we had um, the full health and safety policy. We had ISO nine thousand and two, which was the quality system, and that. So from the Air Force, I'd put all these systems in place. So was, you know, every water cooler that went out, there was just a, you know checkbox started. You know, a bit like flying when you go flying, there's always a, a checklist, you know. Every water cooler went out. There was always a checklist to make sure we'd done everything. The customers had the right letters. They knew exactly. You know, and, um, just organisation, really. You know, like you said before. And then I worked for this Culligan for four years. And, and um, my, my, my good, my good bit of fortune actually, when I sold the business to them, was um, in some ways because they, they said to, the, the carrot to me to stay on with them was they um, said to me was. Um, how many water coolers did I think I could grow the business by in a year? And um, I said, well, if you give me the budget, I says, I can put the, the marketing in place to grow it by whatever you want. So I think I think they thought I was being a bit headed, being a bit big-headed at the time. But I said, well, I can, I says, I can certainly add 400 coolers in the next year. And bear in mind, we had 1,000 coolers at the time. 
and they said, um, okay, if you do that, they said, um, um, we'll pay a £150,000 bonus. And of course, they actually hadn't really thought that um, by, you know, if you give somebody a budget, you know, I mean, if you put the amount of advertising in and everything, and they had the money to do it, and then we, we'd done the 400 uh, and we got another 150000 for uh, for doing what they asked well, with excellent. their money. So yeah. it was, uh, well, that's good. Yeah. That's how it should work. Mm. Yeah, so, um, it was, uh, so that was good fortune as well, really, on the top. But, but on the negative, that, that 150000 no, just, um, no, I tell a lie. It was a hundred thousand pain, hundred thousand. But uh and the but having sold the business before we had the hundred and fifty thousand pounds of um, capital gains tax to pay. Okay, yeah. So right. you, you so you think you're getting you know, you think when you sell a business, you think oh yeah, that's that's good. But um, you know, if you if you if you started a business for for nothing, so say in our case, you start a business with well, well I suppose it had you my my redundancy, but so thirty thousand then you sell that for a million pounds. Yeah. As far as the government's concerned, you've made nine hundred thousand pounds profit, and then they say, right, so capital gains on that, one hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah. So I mean, one hundred fifty thousand is probably you know more than a lot of people pay tax in a lifetime. You know, it's a <laughs> yeah, certainly. So you you know, so it's not all it's not all the milk and honey sort of thing. You know, it's, there is a you know there, there is a commercial aspect to it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Although you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I it's a it's a funny thing because I mean, tax is a very very strange thing. I mean, I get very frustrated with paying the tax I pay, but I do, I do, I guess, think that that we have to have some way of getting back money from you know into society, kind of from corporations. So there's a lot of companies at the moment who aren't paying taxes that frustrate me like because they have the, absolutely legally they've got loopholes to get around that so it's a kind of tax is a funny thing I can I can see it from both sides I guess do you know what I mean I can see it from the side of it being frustrating and 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 I can also see it from the side of it being uh, a kind of a necessary Evil, I guess, or necessary oh, yeah, society. Uh, yeah, I mean, ethically, you do have to pay your you know, your, your, your tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, but yeah. I, I mean, if you, but it's been no difference now. I mean, if you, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if you start up podcast limited or whatever you do with your sure. business. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I should do that. In, in, in theory, you've paid your money for your microphone or your recorder, and then say for you know, say you build that into. Dave Pickering Inc. Yeah, you know, and you sell this for ten million pounds or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll have paid your the profit you made every year. You'll be paying your tax on, but then you think you're going to go and lie in the Bahamas for a while. You're on your ten thousand pounds. You'll have to pay the tax man sure of the profit that you've made over the life. Apart apart from what you've paid every year for in your tax to the to the government, you know, because. Every year you make, you know, you make. If you make a profit on your business, you have to pay the business tax on on that profit. Yeah, know. I'm lucky. I don't. I never really make a profit. It, 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 in a way, you know, it'd be nice if tax worked the other way, where if you don't make profit, you get <laughs> let off. Well, yeah. uh, it doesn't tend to work that way necessarily. No, you, no, no, it does actually. Well, I guess it does. No, I guess it does. Well, I'll give you a good example in the in the mobility business. I mean, now, yeah, the first year. We started that. We made a loss of twenty six thousand pounds. So we didn't. Uh, so, so for, for making a loss of twenty six thousand pounds, 
I didn't have to pay any business tax. Because so, you know, yeah, yeah. if there's nothing, you've not made any money. No, no, you've no, lost money. Yeah. And then, so then this last two years we have made profit, but I'm able to write that back against the £26,000 loss. So I'm not having to pay tax until I balance out my okay. loss against it. So that seems fair. So, so the year you make a loss, you've not had to pay any tax, but you can, like this year now, when we made profit, I can write that back against that loss so I don't have to pay tax, which is you know quite good, actually. Cause, I mean, you've taken the hit with losing the money in the first place. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I, I mean, that's, I think, I, I mean, I'm... I'd play safe, but I mean, a lot of people who'd start businesses, I mean, they do risk a hell of a lot of money. I mean, you know, people, you know, they mortgage their houses to the hilt and mm. all the rest of it. And then if it fails, they've lost everything, you know. There's, yeah. no, there's no redress against that, you know. And of course, without that, I mean, I'm not that level of entrepreneur by any standard means. I'm Mr. Safe. But, um, but some people, you know, they gamble everything on, which m- might just be a whim in some cases. You know, sure. I, mean, yeah, I suspect you watch Dragons Den every. No, well, I mean, no, I mean, I, yeah. and, I, and I understand that from. <clears throat> I mean, I, t- I, I'm increasingly having to deal with tax as a as a thing. I have to work, my, get my head around because I'm starting to get you know uh, freelance money as well as money yeah. uh, from my salary, which. The, you know, I don't have to think about the tax. That just no, gets sorted out by somebody else. Yeah. I'd like to get to a point where I can afford to pay for an accountant to work all of this stuff out for me because I can't get re- really get my head around it but but the other thing I, 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 I do try and do is I do lose like a lot of my creative ventures you could call them ventures I don't know yeah, yeah. they lose money but I always make sure that I never lose more money than I can afford to lose I would never mortgage my house I would never get rid of my day yeah. job you know yeah. I always yeah. make sure yeah. that I can yeah that's sensible balancing your life and your risk yeah right? I mean I don't mind losing money if I've because it, it's a different thing from yeah. entrepreneurship so it's like I don't, it, if I think that the show is good say yeah then I don't mind losing the money but what I don't ever want to do is lose money I can't afford to lose no that's right it's, so it's, yeah that's right well that's similar to me actually it's, it's, yeah you know it's, it's sort of safe gambling if you like yeah I guess so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah right. no I've, I've always been like that even in the, even when we made the water cooler business I would never have an overdraft more than I could afford to pay off at any one time, which is not absolutely normal in a lot of businesses. You know? No. Yeah. Do you think that comes from having a different kind of background to a lot of business people? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it's something I, I say to uh, I say to Bob and Nick, my stepsons, in a way. They they don't worry so much about having money, maybe money for the future or failing at something because there's a sort of safety net under them. Coming from a large family with no money. There was absolutely no safety. I knew when I joined the Air Force, I mean, I suppose some of the rich kids didn't really care if they passed the exams, but for me, passing the exams was, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a maybe. I, I knew absolutely I had to pass them because, you know, because, I mean, in them days, there was no starting an apprenticeship at sort of 18 or 20. Yeah. You know, apprenticeship started at 16. If you'd missed the boat then, it was very difficult to get on an apprenticeship scheme or something later, you know. And, yeah, uh, sure. And, I mean, for sure. I mean, everybody can go um, labouring or digging the roads or something. But I mean, if you wanted to do, and I also know my father. You know, in the, my first pay packet in the air force used to be three pounds a week. And um, you know, some guys that left the school with me, they'd be, you know, working on the, the roads and doing different things. And you know, they'd be getting twenty five, thirty pounds a week. 
and my father used to always say to me, you're better off getting three pounds a week now and it'll pay you better in the end. Really? Of course, he was absolutely right. Um, but, uh, you know, two years in the Air Force and sort of three or five pounds a week, it not, not, wasn't even in the 1970, that, was, that wasn't a lot of money, you know. No. no that was, um, I mean, I remember taking a driving lesson and a, a driving lesson was £1.50 and... and uh, I used, to, I used to try and afford to do that once a month you know, when I was 17. Yeah. yeah. So I guess when you were when you were in the Air Force, you you uh, you kind of lived through some of the kind of I guess wars of recent years. I guess you were in the Air Force during those wars. Were you the Falklands yeah. and the, 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 the War One? The, the, the first one was um, I was in Cyprus. Um, when the Turks invaded in Cyprus in Cyprus 74 I was stationed at Akrotiri I was on the Vulcan bombers and the Turks invaded the island and then the, 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 island, the island of Cyprus is still divided in the middle and you could absolutely, absolutely you could. I, I remember I was on because even if you're an engineer in the Air Force you still have to take your turn on guard duty Right. and I can still remember um, standing on the pan down guarding uh, I think a Hercules Akrotiri, and you could see the the um, flashes going off in Limassol when the bombs were going off because the Turks and the Greeks were fighting in the the town of Limassol, which is one of the, the things. Wow. And um, then a lot of because at that time Akrotiri was one of the biggest stations in the Air Force. Um, I mean, there was two squadrons of Vulcans, a squadron of Lightnings, a squadron of Hercules, and God knows how many helicopters and things there. And big station, very big station, and most of the uh, most of the families lived off the station, and they got all so all the families were brought onto the station. I was single at the time, and we were all moved out of the, the, the you know the single people's accommodation, and um, we had to sleep down at at work, you know, where the squadron was, and uh, and I used to share um, <laughs> myself and this guy Ozzy Clark. We used to um, he had a car co- a white car cover for his car, and we used to share that for our beds because he was in. He was on day shift and I was on night shift, or the other way around every other week, sort of thing. We used to share it. That's where we used to sleep in his um, car cover down at work. And uh, that, I, have, I have to say, the Air Force didn't have any money in the island to pay us. So, well, not that it mattered, because you could only buy the odd beer. And uh, we were running out of food, and I remember when you went to the mess, there was just, you can't, you can't imagine how many people, because there was all these thousands and thousands of families that came in from all the quarters off the station. And they had all to be fed till they got flown back home. And there was all these people, you know, expats who lived in Cyprus. All they, they all came onto the camp with all the cars and everything. all the sports fields were just covered in cars. And uh, I mean, that, I mean, it was bad enough for us, but it was in some ways it, it, the bit of the island where we were was the, you know, mainly the Greeks. I guess the Air Force tend to get stationed in positions where it's relatively safe because you need to have a safe place to fly the planes out from. Oh, that's right. Is that well, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah that, that part of Cyprus, Akrotiri, is what they call a sovereign-based area. That actually, Although it's in Cyprus, it's a sovereign-based area. That, okay. actually, that bit of um, Cyprus actually belongs to... You know the Queen. You know it's not. Yeah, that's, but that said, that's still got to be defended. You know. Sure. Yes. I mean, if you go to Cyprus now, it's still a big division through. You know, there's the Turkey's north and the. Yeah, south. I work in a, an area of London that has quite a large Turkish and Greek population, oh. <laughs> so I kind of know a little bit about yeah. some of the frictions between yeah, yeah, those communities. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it's the funniest thing I remember. Well, it's not really funny, but it's uh, the, the Air Force um, and the Army gave the Turks, it was in that area, a bit of a safe haven in a place called Happy Valley. So what they'd done was basically, it was like the sports area in Episcopi and they put the Turkish people in there to they could get them safely to wherever they were going and, uh, and the story was this uh, army officer comes along in the morning for uh, to go for his ride in his horse and uh, couldn't find the horse and he looks over there's the horse being sort of barbecued because <laughs> they, they hadn't given the Turkish people enough food so, <laughs> so Trigger was on the barbecue <laughs> yeah, well, <coughs> understandable though I mean way. Uh, so did you, and so were you, 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 were you stationed in the Falklands as well? In Falklands I was stationed at that time at Lynham, which is not far from where we live now, which was where the Hercules was. Right. Um, and I, um, I was, at that time, I was I was the sergeant, I think, in charge of the, the air, air electrical bay. That's where all the bits that come off the aircraft come to you and you fix them and put them back on the aircraft. So it was more a what you call a bay job, you know, so all the bits that come off the aircraft come into you. Yeah. And did you and did you go to like Iraq and enjoy it? The, the, well, yeah, after after ninety one, yeah. Because um, I remember that war, like I remember seeing that war. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that, 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 that was the, that was the. Um, I think Mum did refer to you being like, oh, there, but I don't. Oh know. yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, that was quite funny because <laughs> I always remember I said to you, Aunt Margaret, um, I said uh, we were going off to. Palermo, because we used to do a trip to Palermo quite often um, to take some fires to Sardinia. And this is an air to air refueling tankers. And, and we got to Palermo. I always remember saying to your, your aunt, I said, I'll be back tomorrow for my dinner. I'll be back at two o'clock in the afternoon, round about, and then so I'll be home for dinner tomorrow evening. And that was me, fro- I think that was August. And then we got told to stay in um, Palermo. And then they, then they said, we waited there two days and then they said pick up some fighters and then we went to Cyprus and then we were told to stay in Cyprus we knew that the war was you know the invasion started the Iraqis had went into Kuwait then we had to stay in Cyprus for a little while we'd only left the UK with enough clothes for one night you know in, in Palermo and uh, we had no uh, gas masks or rifles or anything so at um, Cyprus we picked we all picked up a gas mask each and um, some in, what call NBC suits, just like carbon suits, just in case there's chemical warfare and things. You put these suits on and your gas masks. And then another aircraft came out from the UK and they brought all their uh, the, the guns for us because, um, you know, the first thing you've got to do at an airport, obviously, when you land somewhere, is just, you want to secure your aeroplane. Because you yeah. so. I was a senior NCO, I, get, I, had, a, I had a machine gun. The, the, the aircrew have a... They have pistols, the pilots and navigators, they have their pistols. And then the the guys that work with me, you know, the ones below us, they have rifles. You know, so, so yeah, it's just like, you know, from, say, the four guys flying it, they would have pistols with me with our little um, submachine gun. Did you have to and use those guns? No, no, goodness, no. Well, <laughs> never, never, no, 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 never, I mean, never if, if the Iraqis are getting as close to your aeroplane that you need the guns or something, you know. You're, yeah, you're, there's you're, something you're, very big wrong, yeah. wrong, yeah. But from there, um, if you can imagine from there, I mean, then that was us in Cyprus, and then, then what the, um, the political situation was, they were a bit worried at this time, because the Yemenis... Um, because they see a bit of unrest, they were a bit worried about the, the Yemeni. They were a bit worried about the Yemenis. I think attacking um, Oman, I believe was the story. And so we were 
we were then we went down to a place called Thumrate in the bottom of Oman and uh, we stayed there for about a month, two months I think and then then from there we went up and we stayed in Bahrain Right, yeah. Because if you can imagine, all the fighters are doing all these things, and we're doing the air to air refueling all around the pl- all around the all around the Middle East and the Gulf. Yeah. So we're we're picking up fighters everywhere and giving them fuel, doing all the bits and pieces. And then I came home briefly for about five days at Christmas time. So from leaving in August for one night, I came home for about five nights at Christmas time, and then I went back out and we went to Riyadh, where the actual main war started. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at Riyadh, um, our whole squadron of aircraft was there. Um, I think it was nine BC-10 tankers on the ground at Riyadh. And that was, I have to say, that was where it was the most dangerous, I think, because the Scud missiles used to come in. And we were, we were funny, for we were staying, it was a hotel we were staying in, but the Patriot missile, the American Patriot missiles that took the Scuds out were just behind our um, hotel. And so when a scud was coming in, you just the, f- the next you know you just and the patriot would go off to take the scud missiles uh, coming out, and you could you know this would be, I mean these were real loud bangs and sure. oh. and and every time the um, those scuds were coming, if you were in the hotel, they used to sound the fire alarm in the hotel, and if you talk about having your um, budgie or parrot for gas detection, if you can imagine every time we hit the fire alarm, the first thing we do is put our gas mask on and. Um, Nuclear biological suits on, so if there's any you know chemicals in the weapon, because we all thought there was chemicals in. So yeah, those big hazmat suits. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well not, no, no, they're more they're more flexible than that. Okay, they're, right. They're not, not not the rubber ones. No. They're, they're sort of they're carbon to soak it up. Basically. Okay. And um, so then we used to nip down into the the sort of cellar of the hotel. Wow. And um, but the guy used to come round knocking on the hotel doors and put a cross on one of the hotel employees. He used to have a wet towel wrapped around his uh, his face because in Saudi Arabia, if they wanted a gas mask, they had to go and pay. I think it was something like the equivalent of twenty pound in reals, and most of them couldn't afford it. So the next best thing was to wrap up a wet towel around their head, to, to you know, because that was the next best thing. So yeah, if you talk about the, the the poor immigrant workers in Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, you think how rich Saudi Arabia was, they wouldn't even give them a gas mask. Sure. They had to have a wet towel wrap around their face. Yeah, yeah. so well, Saudi Arabia is a very strange place. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember one guy there, he was in his haircut one day, and um, the, 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 the minaret started going for prayer, and the guy stopped cutting his hair when he was halfway through and said, come back in an hour. <laughs> but that's the culture, I suppose. Yeah, you know? I mean, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm worried about the people who only have the towels, though. That's, the, 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 you know, yeah. a towel, a wet towel is not not much cop really compared yeah. to a gas mask. I mean, as much as Saudi Arabia is quite a you know a rich country, man, they, they do look on the, the Indians and the workers and the for the, the Filipinos and that as sort of second class citizens, in sure. my view, for sure. You know, yeah, yeah no. I'm not saying that's true for everybody. But it never—I mean, it never is true. As a, but it, but as a, a generalisations never are true yeah. for everybody. Yeah. But they're they're often true. But if there's a graphic on one level, aren't they? That's yeah. The but if there's a graphic thing between life and death, that must be it. Yeah, yeah. That's a really yeah, yeah. No, that's a really clear clear yeah. line. Yeah. So, the last question that I ask people, 
Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny one because it's it's appropriate for some conversations and not appropriate to other conversations, but it's part of the format. So there it goes. The last question I ask is: Do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Now, when I first started asking this question, I expected everybody would be, you know, like a lot of the people I talk to are mus- musicians. They got a band. They want to, you know, want ch- you know, all sorts of things. That, but but what surprised me about this question is that people sort of very early on started took it as a kind of an opportunity to say you know what they what they've learned about life or something they advise people to do and so there's lots of different ways you can take the word plug and now I feel obliged to to point out that some people have used it in that way uh, so that people don't miss out but then that puts pressure on people to think of something profound so don't feel profound really like, don't, don't worry about the question but that's the question <laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, it's quite easy for me actually. Because um, working in a mobility shop and seeing lots of elderly people in various states of not exactly invalids, but different uh, types of disabilities from everything to you know, but the, the life is so hampered because sometimes the lifestyle. You know, I'm I'm no example of a good example of lifestyle, but um, I think for people, if they keep in fit and healthy when they're younger I'm sure they'll make their, their old age a lot easier than if they if they don't look after themselves in fitness and food wise you know. and, sure. and I have to say you know, my work's probably pointed me in the right direction but, uh, that's, uh, but I think that's very true because you see a, a lot of people I mean some people are on mobility scooters I mean and it's good for business for sure but they're, they're on mobility scooters in their mid 50s you know and other people you can see have spent a quite an active life and they're still walking in, you know, well into the 90s some of them sure yeah. although it's a funny thing I mean as you know my dad's 88 and I don't Probably. know I don't know if you'd say necessarily he, he's, he's had an active life but yeah. I'm not sure it would necessarily tick all the health boxes oh no he's, he's, he's certainly <laughs> he's certainly uh, um, I wouldn't say well, well I, wouldn't I, mean, say, I wouldn't say he's the exception to the rule but he's, you're, you're, he's always your father's always been interested in things and He's always kept himself fit. From yeah, that. I can see. Well, oh, mentally and physically, I think. Yeah, yeah. But the smoking and the drinking and the things like yeah, that yeah. are the ones that you shouldn't do. That, that well, he's done. You know. yeah. Well, I see my mother. I mean, she died at eighty, and she's you know, the lung cancer. I'm not sure that's purely down to smoking. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's, yeah. Like, it's luck of the draw. To it. And, and my dad has had a lot of heart issues. Yeah, yeah. But that's it. hard things have not stopped them doing anything. No. But then that's because we live in a world where they can be solved much yeah. easier than yeah. in the past. Yeah. But when I see, when you see, if you go into a mobility shop and you see the amount of aids that people need to get just you know, from a chair. I mean, yeah. I mean, 50% of our sales probably is rising the climb chairs. That's chairs that can get you up onto your feet. And that's, you know, the simple action of just being able to put your hands on the side of the chair and lift yourself onto your feet. Or get in and out of bath, that's another big one. So look, look after yourself. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's, that's nice. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, really. And it, it, is, it is true. Like I've never, I don't think we've sat down in this kind of a situation and, and had a chat about your life. So this is one of the brilliant things that doing this project allows me to do is to find out more about people who I know, you know, who I know. The last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, goodbye, everybody. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. 
or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way and on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted